Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. In some ways, when COVID hit, Peter Yellowlees was ready. I did a webinar with uh, a couple of colleagues about two weeks into COVID, and we had over a thousand psychiatrists listening and watching the webinar. Yellowlees had been doing psychiatry remotely for about 25 years, which made his knowledge both rare and useful last spring as psychiatrists and psychologists and therapists all over the country went remote. And it was happening at a tough moment. Oh, I think there's no question. There's actually a mental health pandemic going on at the current okay. time in relation to the COVID pandemic. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's no doubt that a large number of patients are becoming more distressed. Firstly, patients getting distressed de novo, you know, perhaps because of the isolation and the loneliness that many people feel. And secondly, of course, there's all the patients we've been seeing in the past who are getting more distressed and finding life more difficult. So, you know, the impact of that has been huge. And it's probably best seen by the fact it's it's getting really very difficult to get in to see either a, ther- a therapist or a psychiatrist, even online. The Journal of the American Medical Association reported recently that alcohol consumption is up about 14 percent over last year. In particular, heavy drinking among women has skyrocketed, up more than 40 percent. Yellow Lees, who's a professor of general psychiatry at the University of California, Davis, and a former president of the American Telemedicine Association, says it's a sign of how massive the distress is. Clearly, people are self-medicating by drinking. Uh, It's not a good approach to take. Uh, We would like people not to be doing that and to avoid increasing their alcohol intake and, of course, their drug intake. So the revolution in how patients connect to their doctors and therapists, it comes at a strange time amidst a surge in the number of people who need help. Yellowlees had suspected that if some serious disruption, like a pandemic, occurred, there would be a speedy switch to virtual. But a pandemic? That was way in the future. Until it wasn't. When it happened, clearly this was a huge surprise to many people, despite our previous predictions. And the use of video in particular, uh, telephony to a lesser extent, just became enormous literally overnight. At UC Davis, for instance, where I work, we'd actually previously trained all of our physicians in how to see patients on video. So we were able to switch pretty quickly. And we actually switched our entire outpatient psychiatry department, which was previously about 3 or 4% video, to 100% video within three business days. For some doctors, the switch to working at home was smooth. For others, especially younger doctors, residents with less space, less privacy at home, it's been a jarring change. But for patients, Yellowly says, communication often feels easier. So we know from many years of research that patients really like being seen on video. It's more convenient. It's actually less threatening because they're in their own environment. And they, the patients on the whole find this a very good way of being treated. If you look at our own clinic, for instance, we didn't lose any patients as we switched over from in-person to uh, virtual. And in fact, we found what many people have had is that we actually had a significantly less no-show rate among our patients, perhaps because they're at home and they're easy to contact if they don't appear on time. But in reality, our no-show rates were actually cut by half at the moment we went to video. Uh, so that actually means that we're actually seeing you know, the same number of patients more frequently and and hopefully uh, providing better care. So 
I mean, there's a couple of ways you could look at that, but is that positive in the sense that somebody who, you know, they're feeling down and it is very, it, it's a lot of work maybe to get up, to get dressed, to get in the car, to drive, to see somebody. No, you're asking, right, to park. These are a lot of steps, to fight traffic. I mean, these are a lot of steps, right? Um, and you're asking, obviously, considerably fewer of those steps if you can see somebody on your computer. It, do you feel like, in general, this is positive for patients? Very much so. And I think you've described it beautifully, Kara. The nature of uh, mental illness is that people tend to find it often more difficult to actually get in and see their provider for the reasons that you suggest. And so if you can actually see people in their own environment where it's easier for them, then that's generally a good thing. Take me back for a bit. Um, you mentioned before that you've done this for a long time, seen people, you know, whether it's on the telephone or like a video conferencing kind of thing. When did you first start seeing patients in that way? So I was actually working in Australia in 1991. I lived in central Australia. I was the only psychiatrist that was responsible for an area of land that had the same land mass geographically as the whole of California, and yet only had 35,000 people living there. So you wow. can imagine the distances and the, the lack of people if, if you just put 35,000 people into the whole of California. So I used to fly and uh, travel to see patients, and I was fortunate in being able to get a grant to start seeing patients on, on video, as well as at that time also using the phone. And so the first patient I ever saw was actually a very good learning experience for me. She was a, an Aboriginal woman who had depression. She managed the video perfectly well. And in those days, these were big video boxes that were very expensive. And at the end of the session, uh, she asked me if she could have a copy of the video that uh, we'd just, uh, just done. And I actually assured her at that time that uh, we didn't record it um, because the lawyers didn't want us to. Mm -hmm. And she was disappointed. And I, I was a bit surprised by her being disappointed and not being able to get a copy of her psychiatric assessment. And so I asked her, why was she disappointed? And she said, well, she'd never been on the television before and she wanted to show her whole community. And, and that actually taught me a lot about the importance of this type of approach for patients and how patients were perhaps a little bit less worried on the whole about privacy and some of those issues that providers really worry about a great deal. But this was the very first patient I saw. She was super positive about it and it went really well. And, and since then, I've just continued on. So if you're describing uh, something that happened, uh, uh, you know, 25, 30 years ago, right? That right. was about... Okay. So if that's when it happened, why aren't more therapy, psychologists, psychiatrists visits, you know, up, up until the pandemic hit, why weren't many, many more of them online? There were quite a number of reasons. I think the first reason was the attitudes of providers on the whole. You know, it's more difficult uh, to set up to, to do video conferencing and to, to arrange these visits. And, you know, people and most providers on, uh, I guess, uh, overall felt that they were providing the best possible care in person and that uh, doing that similar sort of care by video wouldn't necessarily be as good. 
There were a lot of regulatory problems, and it was interesting that when COVID came, the federal government actually managed to really take out all of those barrier regulations to make it much easier to be reimbursed for providing video care and telephony, and to also be able to see patients uh, in any particular state and to prescribe any particular medication. So so the federal government did a good job of uh, reducing regulations at the beginning of COVID, and these were regulations that have been real barriers to the development of telemedicine previously. Finally, the, the other um, big difference over the many years has been in technology. Uh, literally, the technology has changed dramatically, as we all know. Nowadays, I see all my patients using mobile devices. I use a laptop, I use a, an iPad, I use a phone. Uh, I don't actually possess a wired computer at home anymore. And patients are the same. And we can see patients well on secure video using a range of different mobile devices. So it quite honestly, from a technical point of view, it's just simply much, much simpler than it used to be. Is it is it weird for patients that not only are they telling you things, but you're seeing their house? You know, it's re- that's a really interesting point. I mean, I tend to think of us uh, as going back now to doing virtual home visits. Doctors used to do a lot of home visits in the past. And I think with video, we can do that again. And obviously, you do that with the patient's consent. But I pretty routinely get patients to actually pick up their device and show me the home. Show me what their pictures are. Show me what uh, what what their interests are. What what they've got uh, around the house. Let me meet their pets. Show me their garden. <laughs> Show me their kitchen. Have a look in the fridge. See what sort of food they've got, if necessary. You can find out an amazing amount about patients by simply wandering around their home with them, and and seeing how they manage uh, in everyday life. And quite honestly, you can find out a lot more about them than you can in comparison to seeing them in a typical clinic room, uh, which is fairly Spartan, is very much the physician's uh, place of work. Is there anything lost, though, by like not physically seeing somebody? I mean, is it all upsides? Or I, I think there's no doubt that some patients would prefer to see you in person. And I think that's perfectly reasonable. What I think is going to happen in the future is we're going to increasingly move to what I call hybrid care, where patients will decide depending on their choice and convenience, whether they wish to see their physicians or their other mental health providers or, or, or providers in other disciplines, uh, they'll see them both in person and online, just depending on what's happening at the time and what suits best. And I think that's the way we're going. And, and certainly I've been doing that with my patients now for several years. And what I usually find is that patients initially start seeing me in person then once I've got to know them, they actually prefer seeing me online and uh, by video. Mm. And uh, one of the, the things that I certainly noticed is a large number of patients actually end up seeing me from their cars. The car, as far as I'm concerned, is sort of, has become the new therapy room because when you're out and about during the day, it's actually the most convenient private place that you can often find as long as you shut the windows and park in a quiet area of a, of a parking lot. Okay, so they're not driving. They are just parked somewhere. Absolutely not driving, of course. Okay. So they're parked. That's so interesting. Is, is that because, you know, I mean, obviously we're in a moment now where a lot of people have spouses who are home, they have kids who are home, and they're trying to tell you something that's private. And, like, who knows if the 10-year-old is, like, 
you know, on Zoom school or wandering around. Exactly. Just like uh, the, the residents that we were talking about earlier can sometimes find it difficult to get a private place in their home, you know, especially if they're sharing. Patients are just the same. It can sometimes be difficult to get a private place. And so the obvious simple private place is just to go out and sit in the car and uh, make sure you've just moved your car to somewhere that uh, is relatively isolated, which is typically a, a large parking lot. When you think about psychiatry, psychology, um, you know, just therapy, um, is there... I know this sounds upside down and, and maybe strange, but is there any uh, downside to the fact that now it's so easy to access? You, you don't have to drive somewhere. I wonder if the system is overwhelmed by the number of people who, who want to access it. Right. There's certain people before who might have been they might have lived in too rural a place or they didn't have the time to drive in. Well, if all those barriers come down, is the system really ready for that many people? Look, I think uh, that's a really important question. And the answer is that the system is clearly not ready for that number of people. We know that for many years now there has been a, a shortage of uh, psychiatrists, psychologists and, and other groups of therapists. And if you look at statistics nationally, the large amount of mental health is actually provided in primary care by primary care physicians. And so we know that there are already not enough mental health professionals around. So clearly that's going to be an issue. And I think one of the, the downsides of COVID is that, you know, a number of mental health providers as well as primary care physicians have uh, actually either retired or some of them have gone bankrupt if they didn't want to change the way they worked or have gone and decided to do different, uh, different things. Prior to COVID, we had shortages in psychiatry and primary care. After COVID, I think those shortages are going to be actually even worse. And so that's a real issue. That's a real problem. And we're going to have to look at how do we scale the services we provide using technology as, as well as other approaches so that the average mental health provider is able to see and or supervise more patients than they were able to do in the past. So let me ask you about that. How can you scale something where if I am talking to you about something that's, you know, private, how can we scale? It's not really like a class where we can have five other people or maybe maybe we can. But I mean, explain to me how that would work. Well, I mean, one of the things we've been doing is recording patients and doing what we call asynchronous telepsychiatry, whereby we record patients who are being interviewed by expert interviewers who are not necessarily physicians. Um, okay. and, uh, and we then see the recordings of the, the patients talking to the interviewers and those recordings then get sent to someone like myself, you know, a more highly trained psychiatrist. I look at the recordings, I look at their medical notes, I write a report, just as if I was writing a report on somebody who'd had a chest x-ray and I send that report back to their primary care physician who then works with their primary care mental health team to actually provide the treatment and the care. So what it means is that uh, someone who has got a lot of training and a lot of expertise, particularly in diagnosis, becomes more of a consultant and actually sees more individual patients because they're not necessarily taking on so many patients individually to treat them themselves. If you look uh, kind of five to 10 years in the future after COVID, where do you think telepsychiatry, you know, teletherapy, where will that be? How will this moment have changed things? I think that we will be treating patients really quite differently. 
We will, of course, still be seeing some patients in the traditional way in our offices, in person, doing the, the usual things that we've done forever. And there's nothing wrong with doing that. But I think we'll be increasingly seeing larger numbers of patients you know, at home. Uh, there will be certain groups of the more highly trained uh, mental health professionals who are doing more consulting rather than actually treating people all themselves and, and are teaching and supervising other mental health professionals. And I think we'll be doing a lot more of monitoring at home, whether we're using video or whether we're using phones, watch how much people are exercising that can be used for data entry for all sorts of different scales and approaches like that, or that can be used for therapy themselves, for, for instance, cognitive behavioral therapy via quite a number of apps at the present time. So we're going to be using a lot more of those sorts of technologies to support the human-given care. And I think we're going to find that increasingly that human-given care is going to be actually given via technologies or patients will be able to increasingly provide a greater amount of the care in a self-driven approach. Finally, I just want to wrap back to what we talked a little bit about at the beginning, which is, you know, obviously we're in the middle of um, a pandemic and you said there's also right alongside it a mental health pandemic. What concerns you most about that? Like, what do you think people do not know or realize? What would you like them to to understand about what you see and what you know from that, from the mental health side of things? Well, I think we're going through a period of trauma right now, and it's national trauma that, that relates to the individual level. We know that there are increased levels of depression and anxiety. We know there are increased levels of domestic violence, of substance and, al and alcohol abuse. We know also that there have been more abortions, for instance, in the last six months. Um, we don't know yet about all of the, the other sequelae in, in the sort of childbearing uh, area, but we assume there's going to be more children also born. And then the isolation and loneliness that people feel is actually a, a very important social determinant of disease. And we know that people who are isolated and lonely tend to, in fact, not eat well, not exercise well, not look after themselves so well and in fact are more at risk of, again, sort of continuing both mental health problems and physical problems. So there's this sort of cycle going on, unfortunately, of a trauma and the uncertainty mm. of being at home combined with the isolation. And I think it's a, it's a real concern for the future because there's no doubt that we are building up uh, a number of vulnerability factors that uh, people are going to need considerable help with over the next few years. And, uh, you know, I don't think personally that we have uh, the mental health capacity nationally to do that. So I think we're going to have to look very much at how do we provide more mental health care just in the same way as we're having to look at how do we provide more PPE and more therapeutics for COVID. Peter Yellowlees is professor of general psychiatry at the University of California, Davis. He's the former president of the American Telemedicine Association. Peter, thank you so much. This is such an important conversation. Thank you very much indeed, Kara. And we've got a lot more on our website about both mental health and virtual help during the pandemic, including large-scale looks at distress online and why a huge uptick in dog adoptions may come as a result of some of that distress and loneliness. That's at innovationhub.org. 
thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Sollinger, and associate producer Sarah Leeson. We also had production help from Caitlin Falls. From PRX and GBH, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub.